Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 88 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, RH Investment Group. Ray Herto, RH Investment Group. And joining us today is our guests. David Grossman. And Jake Grossman. From the Grossman Companies. Yeah, and we're, first, we're real excited to be on the uh, pasta episode. David Pasenak, big fan. Number 88. <laughs> so you guys are part two. Right? Yeah, you guys are like the patrons, the benefactors of the Real Estate Addicts podcast. So we want to say we appreciate you in supporting our art here and what we're doing. Are there t-shirts or anything? There are. We still owe you those for probably a year and a half now. I'll take a medium. Medium? Done. Extra large for me. I got you. All right, Mark, that's on your to-do list? Yep. Beautiful. Yeah. So last time we had you on... Was it, was it pre-COVID or middle COVID or? It wasn't in person. I mean, you guys claim to be entrepreneurs. At the end of our last session, I said, can we sponsor this for you guys? And you're like, wow, why don't we never, why didn't you ever think of that? <laughs> I just lack confidence. Was it a remote episode the last time? Did we do remote? We were in person. No, we were in person. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. But was it, how could I forget those baby blues ears? Oh, there you go. Ah. They're hazel. <laughs> <laughs> um, was it pre-COVID or, or during? Uh, I don't during. Uh-huh. During, I think. Well, regardless, we're walking in the building today, and Dave said, the market is on fire. And I had to sort of second guess, like, are you being sarcastic or is that real? And and Dave said, it's real. Wait, so, the stock market, the real estate market? It's a real estate podcast, real right? Estate podcast. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, we're talking <laughs> about the stock market NASDAQ, you know. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm surprised you guys aren't seeing it. We're very... Um, so we obviously got a big loan portfolio, but sub million to price point, both in the city and in the suburbs, very, very active start to the year. Yeah, I actually, I've heard from a, a couple brokers that all of a sudden, like things have kind of took taken off in the first couple of weeks of the year for, I don't know why, or like, are pe- I think it was a half point drop, you know. It was a bit of a tease because it's, yeah. it's since gone up. Well, you got you to gotta make your move. Our spring market usually starts in January. So I guess on that hand, it's based on that. It's not that it's much of a shock. Mm-hmm. Just given our interest rates have gone a little bit of a surprise, but yeah, we'll take it. Maybe people are kind of settling in. Maybe they feel that things have started to plateau a little bit. So maybe they're getting a little bit more comfortable dipping back into the market. Yeah, people will be able to certainly plan accordingly for that last, last nine months. We've heard some people think rates may be going down and planning to refinance in a couple of years. But at the end of the day, inventory is still very, very low. Yeah. It's very tight. No many yeah. choices. Yeah, and the public markets have stabilized, it feels like at least. Talk to us about the division of labor at the Grossman companies here. Jake, what do you what do you do? I do what Jake says. <laughs> I'm the director of food and beverage. So <laughs> if you came to our office, the meal would be exquisite. It's a very important role. Yeah. No, so I spend my time on real estate investing and partnerships. So my background is primarily with as a principal real estate investor, I worked for a spin out of Harvard's endowment for five and a half years. And when I joined, Dave and I stepped into a family business that was not really growth oriented. And Dave had gravitated to the lending side of the business and I immediately started focused on new real estate uh, investments. And our niche is middle market real estate. So properties that are too large for a well-to-do dentist and too small for institutional competitors in in our world. So what that is, is really two to $25 million acquisitions. And if we have $100 of our own to invest, 70 would be for value creation opportunities, buying something that's a little broken, fixing it, and then financing it nicely or selling it. 20 would be for core, probably unsexy, low yielding real estate that we'll never worry about and be happy that we own in 10 years. And then $10 would be for high-risk investing, uh, entitlement development, where there's a pretty good chance we lose money, but we think that there's a better chance that we make a multiple on it. So I spend my time looking for those kinds of opportunities, which is through direct channels that we have, through friends, and through partnership. We really like partnering with other real estate operators. And is this is this specifically uh, multifamily, retail, combination of everything? We're focused on opportunity. So until recently, we have not been super active on multifamily investment. It's just been really competitive. And a a big mistake that we made was that I made really when I joined the family business from the institutional world, I came in and said, we need to buy more apartment buildings and it's gotta be 125 units or more. And those properties are just not our fit. Those are institutional investments. And our niche, like I said, is middle market. So we weren't able to be super active. And then in 
2020, I finally kicked myself with Dave's help on my ass. Can I say ass? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we don't beep anything. All right, good. Are we rated E for uh, everyone or uh, explicit? Uh, PG-13. All right. Right in the middle. All right, good. So if I can I can use the whole tool toolbox. One hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, there there are well, very few words. Yeah. All right. This isn't the UK. We can't drop some of those words. Okay. Anyway, I'll so clarify when it's Jake Grossman speaking. <laughs> so in twenty twenty, we embraced our middle market niche and formed what we call Diversified Department Holdings, which is a boutique fund that is focused on the full range of diverse apartment investments. It's got an urban focus. And when it's called diversified, it's intentional to be diverse across product type, across renter profile, and uh, risk. So in that venture, we have some development opportunities. We have workforce housing that we've acquired. We are participating as a general partner, or we're a limited partner in some cases, and we even have triple-deckers in there. So like the full array of urban apartment. And we expanded that over time, and now I've select suburban boutique apartment investments. And pretty concentrated in greater Boston. Yeah. Um, you know, I joined in 2009, Jake joined in 2011. So it's been a little over 10 years and probably about 18 months ago, as we were forming this, we were, we were kind of kicking ourselves in the head, looking back on what we've done in the last 10 years. And we're really proud of growing both sides of our business, but had only really made two residential investments in that time. One was a development in Austin, which Jake can probably talk about. And then the East Boston portfolio. Um, and just determined that focusing on 30 to 80 unit buildings, which is one of the market, which would also leverage the relationships we had on the lending side, where we work with a lot of home builders, was a recipe for success. And you know, so far it's worked out well, and really it's a bet on Boston. Nice. What are some of the key metrics that you consider the highest importance when you're looking at deals? You know, are you are you looking at sort of like exit IRR that sort of thing? Are you looking at well, uh, just cash flow, kind of a combination of the both? Yeah, our grandfather had two rules. Uh, you might have heard these rules. Rule number one is don't lose money. Hmm. Rule number two was don't forget rule number one. Yeah. That really depend on the investment. So if we're going to focus on apartments, our objective, well, what we've said to target is that we want to generate a 5 to 6% current return as quickly as possible, which is not going to light anybody's hair on fire with excitement. But our underlying premise is that Boston is tremendously high barriers to entry, the institutional base that's here of healthcare and academia, and we can go on and on about all that makes Boston unique. If you look over a very long period of time, rents have gone up. If you look at almost any 10-year period, there are apartments in Boston that even from dip to dip, you would not have lost money if you bought apartment buildings during that time. So as we look at large families in Boston, a lot of them have had concentrated growth through apartment investment, and we just have never really participated in that. So that's the underlying thesis of diversified apartment holdings. To your question, we want to generate an appropriate return relative to the risk as quickly as possible. Sure. And that 70% that you had mentioned earlier, you know, for every $100, you want 70 going into value, value creation. Value creation. How has the debt market sort of changed? Has it, has it changed any of your approach on that aspect of it? It hasn't changed our underlying philosophy of what we're trying to do. Certainly when we're buying assets, we, we need to f have more equity on the front end, which makes it harder to generate the yield retarding. So reflect on the last nine or 12 months, you know, we've been kicking a lot of tires, but harder to make deals pencil. So you're saying put more equity in exactly rather than, you know, to adjust for the higher debt service. So that that's kind of staying at a constant level. Got it. Correct. Yeah. We're starting to see some, I, I wouldn't call it distress. We're starting to see some more motivated sellers cross our platforms, both on the commercial side and the residential side. But, you know, I think time will tell where, where things shake out. But our, our father has always said, you know, buy great real estate and, real estate and capitalize it appropriately. So you can kind of get through the, the down cycles especially in a market like Boston, where that's that's the, the view we take for the long term. Yeah, we have we have the benefit of a long history of owning property in in greater Boston. And one of the things that it didn't take long for us to figure out is good things happen to good real estate. So if you look at their, our family's portfolio, some of the best property was acquired decades ago at a market price at that time. And it just was fundamentally sound property. We're really happy to own it now. And so a, a lot of what we're trying to do now is focus on high quality property where the cash flow has uh, a pretty good chance of, of improving. But we've, we've been a buyer of 
grocer anchored retail over the last 10 years. We've been buyer of uh, vacant retail. We've been a buyer of vacant industrial. We've been a developer of self-storage. Permitted a lot of land. Land entitlement. Yeah. So you're, you're across, yeah, across a lot of different asset classes. <laughs> what, what makes your eyes light up when you say, uh, you know, fundamentally sound, high quality property? What, what, what characteristics does that high quality property have? I think the best example that I can think of is our purchase of the Stop and Shop in Everett in 2018. And that got us really jazzed because we paid a five cap for that property. And that, again, the, the yield on that was not tremendously enticing, but what we saw was a large property in the path of growth very close to the city of Boston. And so what we saw when you talk about numbers is we saw a property that was gonna generate a stable return for as long as the tenant was gonna stay. And the day they left, we'd be psyched. And so it just so happened that fast forward in uh, December of 2021, we were able to come to a termination agreement with the tenant and that paved the way for us to permit the property for uh, I believe it was 800 apartments, which we subsequently sold in uh, at the end of 2022. Did you consider developing that? We did, we would have loved to have developed it, but we're really focused on how we manage risk. And also when we, when we decide we're holding or selling, we look at it relative to what else we could do. And by developing it, we were willing uh, implicitly to pay what the market was willing to pay for that land. And we just weren't willing to do that. I mean, it was the scale of the project was beyond our typical. The 800 is no joke. That's a pretty big, yeah. yeah. It might, it's actually outside of the criteria that you had mentioned earlier you know, those dollar amounts right so there were some there were some times jake and i would walk into each other's office and talk about how great it would be to develop it and then after about a couple of minutes we called call bullshit on each other <laughs> <laughs> it, it's tough when you take the skin off the ball right at, at like in that way because you know if you're going to make a hundred dollars on the deal and you've already made 85 and then you can go for 15 more and work really hard it's pretty tempting to take the 85. You know. It's not even the work. The financial yeah. risk with yeah. making that last 15 is potentially the riskiest component of the whole endeavor. Yeah, for Let's sure. Talk about Alston a little bit, Jake. Our view of risk relative to development is based on some recent history. So in, I can't remember what year it was, but we- 2014. In, in 2014, we got control of land in Alston in what Mayor Menino called the Guest Street Corridor. At the time, Alston, that pocket of Alston was not a desirable place to live. New Balance- was almost done and there was talk of a new train station. And uh, with a partner, we got approval for a small project. Was it 80 units? And pre-Bruins, pre-Celtics. And we got a permitted modular. It's the largest modular project, probably still in the city's history. And we've learned development a little bit, but it's not something we do every day. And somebody once said, you know, you don't really play a developer. That's a good way to go bankrupt. Yeah. yeah. And so we, we had a, a really good partner who was a capable developer, is a capable developer, and we tackled this project together. And probably the second worst thing that could happen on a construction job happened. The, the largest subcontractor, the modular fabricator, went bankrupt. <laughs> and, and so after they had your check to fabricate, no, that's a, that's a good question. So we, we were concerned about Great their question. We were concerned about their test before yeah. we even started. <laughs> yeah, we were concerned about their financial wherewithal. So yeah. the contract was structured to protect us. So they had to post a letter of credit before we posted our deposit. And so they weren't able to post the letter of credit. And so we ended up never having any financial risk other than losing time. How much time? So they couldn't have done a bond, sorry. They couldn't the have podium wasn't or anything. The podium was built and ready for them to start fabricating. And so the podium sat. This because, is inherently one of the uh, challenges of modulars. Financial institutions, lenders are uh, rightfully so <laughs> scared to write a big check before the boxes are produced and delivered because they could go out of business. Did you have a lot of pushback from the city too, from a, like just from a review process of like they, it, yeah. it, it took some, it took some convincing, but at the time it took, all, to expand on what you're getting at there is typically all these things are pre-built. So the quote unquote inspections happen at the modular facility. That's yeah. what you're getting at. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, then our coordination is, is much different than a standard stick built. There's a inspection process that is well understood. It was actually outsourced by uh, the city was involved, but it was a, like a third party. It was a third party. Yeah. Okay. I had a LinkedIn post recently about basically my disdain for modular and it was a little bit of clickbait and I went a little far on purpose. 
but it definitely um, elicited some reactions. So, but again, waffles back to, back and to our, our the, the family view, which is probably a lot of other people, buy, buy, develop great real estate, capitalize appropriately with a great lender on the project, Brookline Bank. And, you know, when the proverbial shit hit the fan, we talked to them, we told them what was going on. They had confidence in us and we managed through it. Our father was on the note. So we had to manage that, but he was fantastic. <laughs> that, that, that was a whole. Mother. That was probably the worst. That was probably the worst. That was, that, that was a seminal moment. Dad, dad, just sign this in a family this. business. I mean, yeah. my our dad never was interested in taking big risk, and so he signed the completion guarantee to help us accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And then the, the the second worst thing that could happen happened, and after after that, our offices. My dad's in the middle between Dave and me, and he said to me. Call your friends from your institutional world and find out who's going to take us out of this project. Huh. I mean, so that was it. There was no go find another modular and so so that was his visceral reaction. Yeah, recognizing that he signed his handsome signature on the note, and it took about six hours to say, okay, well, let's take a breath, and we'll come back with a plan. And with great help from our people, we we're able to convince them over the course of a week that here's our path forward. And these are the steps we need to take to mitigate this risk. And we convinced them to proceed. And we got lucky. The RCM Modular ended up building it at Akina. They were our preferred vendor to begin with. They didn't have time during their factory line to, to meet our timeline. And with our reset, they, were, they had an opening. So they were supremely motivated to take the business. Their price ended up being better and the product was better. So nice. it all worked out. But... There was quite a bit of loss. <clears throat> That's stressful. Do you still own the building? No, we sold it about a year after we got our certificate of occupancy. Hey, we wanted to stop and acknowledge our sponsor, First Boston Capital Partners. Uh, Dave Grossman and his team do a fantastic job. So if you need financing to build a building, we highly recommend reaching out to them. They're super flexible, fast, really good group to work with. I uh, can't say enough. So First Boston Capital Partners. You can reach out to us for an introduction and I'll be happy to put you in touch. So it sounds like you guys actually maybe back up a little bit because it's interesting because you said your your father is is kind of We actually invited him to come today, but he said no. Yeah. He says, What's a podcast? Well, it sounded like he's he's very conservative when it comes to his investing. And so, you know, you mentioned that you joined in two thousand nine and you joined in two thousand eleven to kind of grow the business uh, yeah. and kind of take it to the next level. Can you kind of talk about yeah, so how I, that happened? Because, you know, and did you have to like push him a little bit out of his comfort zone? It sounds like you did. Yeah, no, it's, um, I guess better to be lucky than smart. Uh, timing, timing for, you know, knock on wood has been fortuitous for us. I guess I probably always wanted to join the family business. Jake always interested, but maybe not quite to the same extent. If we weren't lucky enough to have a family business to ultimately enter, I think we probably would be doing what we're doing on our own together, but you know, uh, you know, with, uh, with, with not the history. And when I joined in the summer of 2009, I had a real commercial real estate lending and development background. I worked at a developer um, for a couple of years and timing was hindsight being 2020. We had a legacy lending LLC that had been dormant because our father was never interested in the lending business. When I joined, we, you know, spent uh, the mission was to spend half my time growing our a dormant lending business and to you know asset manage the portfolio and we weren't really looking to buy at that time just given where we were in the cycle so just you know had some cash and started making loans figuring out on the fly ultimately my my banking experience said it's all about the people and doing repeat business with the same customers and that's the same lending philosophy we have today and you know still slowly started making loans getting more active a couple of years later we're starting to see some opportunities to acquire assets and again, timing fortuitous, Jake at that time, you know, we, we each worked for seven years for somebody else before, um, and Jake was ready to join. So, and it was at a point in time where our lending business was getting busy enough where I was really not spending 50% of my time on it. I was spending hundred percent of my time on it. So that, that worked out real well. And just back to kind of the, do we need to convince our family or our father? Jake and I clearly had the same view of where we wanted to take the business and, and our father was on board with that. Um, he's pretty fully retired today, but he gave us enough rope um, to you know, learn and not hang ourselves when we joined. And the view is that the family is going to support you in the deals that you source, but you've got to raise your own capital. You've got to find your own deals. 
the investment team. There really was an investment team when we joined because the you know our father being how conservative was hadn't been active thankfully through the downturn. So not only do we have a fantastic family reputation and a balance sheet, but we, we really didn't have any major legacy issues to speak of. We certainly had a couple challenges and that was great learning experience for me when I joined. When I when I joined, we owned what's now the CubeSmart self-storage facility in East Boston, but it was a, it was a self it was extra space managed. We we developed it we used to own, but have since sold a bunch of the air freight industrial assets on Route 1A there in East Boston. And that's how that deal came about. And when, when I was in college, when we were in college, you know, our, our father developed this storage facility, not knowing anything about storage, but with somebody local who knew the storage business well, thought it was a phenomenal asset given the demographics of, of East Boston and the undersupplied market. And construction went well, delivered it, it 1,200 units delivered in, into the Great Recession, took forever to lease up. With an interest rate swap. Yeah, with an interest, a 7.23% interest rate swap. So not only was the asset not covering its expenses, but we had this painful swap. So again, speaking to this you know, mantra of like good real estate will ultimately win, you know, we thankfully were able to support the asset and got through the downturn and leased the asset up, ended up selling it for like a 5% gap. We made not one distribution to our investors for 10 years and ultimately mm -hmm. be a, ended up being like a, 3x multiple on equity, but that's because we were able to carry it. So again, yeah. the family being behind us, supporting us. And so today when we source new investments, we do a memo just like we would if we were an institution, goes to the family first, who's looking to invest and how much. And once we know how much the family's investing, we then send it to our investors. And every deal we do other than a family 1031 exchange, we send to all of our investors. We don't cherry pick any of our deals. And the family invests on the same terms. But back to your question about convincing dad, he, he was never, he, he viewed his primary job as being a steward of family assets, but his history that Dave just described, it showed that he's, he's open to risk if you can understand it. And so that's something that we've, in retrospect, it seems eloquent and well considered, but what we figured out is that if we can take the time to understand the risk and do our best to mitigate it, we don't get a lot of pushback. And one of the things that Dave also said in passing is the self-storage facility my dad was not super comfortable with development, but we had a partner. And so one of the things that we really like doing now is having partnerships. So of the probably 50 real estate investments we've made in the past 12 years, probably 15 of them have a real estate investor developer as a partner. So you know, that helps de-risk. De-risk. We love, you know, also we have a view of executes how to the, Yeah, executes a lot of it too. Yeah. We love to share risk and we love to share hopefully reward. By having another professional at the table, we get another perspective on managing the risk, how to execute things, a different set of contacts. All those things are helpful to get good people who have mutual respect to a good investment result. And when we look at our lending business, we are super focused on the people with whom we work. So certainly some of them may not be as well capitalized as some major developers, but we do it. You know, 89% of our business in 2022 is with repeat customers that we've been working with for, for many years. So when we talk about the relationships and the people, we're just, we're laser focused on, on really everything we do. Can we go back to actually talk more about the lending side of the business? Um, for we do, I think the East Boston story reminds me of a, a truism. Uh, my dad, you say that the market can remain irrational much longer than you can remain liquid. But I like that you guys can extend that liquidity period longer than perhaps some, and you're able to to get through that little. And that's uh, one of the reasons we try to stay in the middle market because that's yeah. that's the sandbox that we think will be most competitive. Right, right, right. Now, go on the lending side. Interest rates are obviously going up. How does that affect your lending business? I mean. You're a private lender. Your rates typically aren't, weren't the three, four percent when rates were that cheap. Have your rates gone up commensurately with traditional debt rates, or have you been able to sort of hold that same line, fifteen to twenty percent? I would assume is a is a typical. Yeah. So banks were charging three and a half, four and a half percent. They're now charging seven and a half, eight percent. The private lending space is generally an eleven to thirteen percent. Space. Also, oh, I was just high historically. Yeah. Uh, if you want to pay twenty, let us know. <laughs> That's the mark special. Yeah. And Jeez. where where you we're using this opportunity. The answer to your question is no. We're using yeah. this opportunity to kind of take advantage of our, our our balance sheet, our stable capital base, and we are incrementally charging more. So I say today we're charging in the twelve to thirteen percent range, whereas our the banks are charging seven and a half, double what eight percent. Private lenders are either out of the market because. 
not many folks, we have a dedicated fund that we control the capital um, or the family is the largest investor. But so we, we are focused, we have the capital. We, many of our private lender competitors are, are highly leveraged. So their cost of funds has increased commensurately with the bank. So they need to charge more to make their margin. Some of our private lender competitors have historically sold their, you know, originated a loan, you know, on September 1st and sell it on October 1st to a Wall Street hedge fund whose cost of capital similarly has increased. So those private lenders are probably not in the market today. So what we're doing is we're taking this place in the market today to leverage the strength we have and to try to find, continue to service the, the folks that we work with, but also bring in newer customers and, and marginally charge more. But you know, on a relative basis, we're much more attractive than we were. And that's, we want to take advantage of that. That's great. Nice. So going back, you, you, you had mentioned, Jake, that you know, some of the purchases that you've made, you know, you're okay with a four to five percent return. How does that translate to your investor expectations? Because obviously you're it sounds like you guys are in it for a long game, right? You play you're playing the long game. So no, not not necessarily. So we we have that the, the division of how we would allocate our dollars. So that doesn't all mean the long game. In in Everett as an example, we we communicated to our investors the downside scenario is a 5% return for a very long time. Yeah. But that's not the worst thing. Most most projects that have a level of risk, there's a chance of losing capital. And so- uh, Do you have, sorry, do you have different investors that fall into different buckets? So, or or is it just fund-based? So once our investors, once, once an investor participates with us, we tell them they will see every investment we make with the exception of a family tax deferred exchange, which needs to be isolated to our family. So. They can decide what they like. We could look at patterns amongst investors, and we know certain kind, certain investors of ours prefer to take a lot of risk, and they don't want to do uh, what they think as the less risky investments, and and vice versa. But most of our investors are participating in some way in most of what we do. But generally, the assets we acquire, we're targeting net of fees a return in the eleven to seventeen percent range, depending on the. It's, you know, it's got to be on the appropriate risk adjusted return. But at the end of the day. We're super lucky to have an investor base that I, I think ultimately is relying on us investing alongside us. They, they always want to know what the family's investing. So if we think it's appropriate for the return is appropriate for the risk, they're generally, they have the opportunity to say, yeah, you're nay, but they're generally, you know, coming along for the ride. Now they may see a deal that's an 11 and say, yeah, I'm going to invest, but I'm only going to invest a dollar instead of the $3 I might invest if you show me a deal that's a 16 target. But back to good things happening in good real estate. So Everett's a great example, but another one is we bought uh, 429 Harvard Street in Brookline in, I don't remember what year, it was probably 2011 or 2012. We paid a five cap for a citizen's bank. And we went to a subs we went to our investors and said, this is, earmark this as forever. This is just great property in the center of Harvard Street in, in, in Brookline. And we expected it to be unsexy. Citizens Bank ended up signing a 10-year extension as, as cap rates went to the floor. And while we wanted to own that and build a little apartment building, we just had to sell it. And so our investors who were expecting a, a four or 5% return for the next 20 years, they ended up like tripling their money in a short duration, just because we looked at it and said, well, if we keep this 10 year lease, then that means we would buy it. And in that case, we would not have paid that yield. I, I really respect how you guys are able to allow your investors to pick each of these projects. And, and I'll just bring this up. It's kind of third rail of real estate development, but it, it's commingling of funds and it's not proper. And it, it's done out there. And I think that people would be shocked to learn sometimes that you've invested in a certain deal and that money went to finish another deal. And as long as you can keep the music playing, maybe that game can continue, but eventually the tide goes out. It's called wire fraud. So to our listeners, where's, where's, what's, what's, what's the genesis you know, of this uh, thought, Mark? What? This kind of came out of left field. Kind of left, I mean, just because we're talking about like, our, we let our investors pick the risk profile and which deals they like, and that's and that's proper. And I'm sure you guys execute that perfectly. But I've just seen no, enough. No, it's perfectly. I mean, it's also the yeah. documents that yeah. you sign and the, the legal aspect yeah. of it. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'd, I'd amplify what you're saying, Mark, which is where we're lucky to step into a business as a great foundation. But our greatest asset is a reputation that we've inherited. And so... There's nothing that any real estate investment could do or incentivize us to do that would ever suggest that we do something that we wouldn't want to read on the cover of the globe. So we are lucky to be able to support projects because projects don't always go the right way. Mm -hmm. And we always treat every investment 
like family are our only investors because we want to be able to look to any one of our investors and say, here's what we did, here's why. And by the way, in most cases where there's a problem, we're welcoming you to join us. So where, where projects need capital, they might need a loan to get through a difficult time. We'll invite our investors to participate. Generally, we're going to support them and our investors typically aren't eager to support <clears throat> problems, uh, you know, properties that need cash. But ultimately, it's for their benefit, and we've told them, "Hey, you can join us too." We don't want you. We don't want you to ever think that we're doing something that's to benefit us and doesn't also benefit you. Sure, but I just tell what I, where I think you're going. I actually was at a job site uh, this morning uh, with a general contractor, and we were just talking about costs. You know, where where is uh, where's labor today? Where materials seem to be trending down, which wasn't a surprise. But I, this is a larger project. It was probably a $20 million development. We had a preferred equity investment, which we should talk about what we're doing there on the side of our business as well. But in any event, I said, how, what's, are you seeing any stress in your subcontractors? And he, he said, yeah, over the last six, nine months, we're starting to see, see some of the, some of our subs, you know, feeling some pressure to get more jobs, both awarded. a feeling not being as busy and bidding more aggressively, but that's just generally the cost. But you know, have any of your subs gone under? Are they having yeah. financial distress was really the question to Mark's, Mark's comment. Yeah, some of these guys are very, they're focused on their cash flow. They're not focused on their profit. And when the cash flow dries up because the, the world changes, that's when the rubber meets the road and you may have a plumber that you know can't build out a 35 unit job. That's really good advice. I, th I see that a lot in the subcontractor world. Where they, they don't even know their profitability year over year. It's just cash coming in the door. And then if the music stops, it, it can be in trouble. So it is a good time to make sure. In our business, we're, we're financing builders, investors. We're mm -hmm. enabling them to grow. We're doing repeat business with them. So, you know, we know and trust them and vice versa. And ultimately, you know, I've said to some of, sometimes what we provide is like a drug. You know, we provide capital <laughs> to them and enable them to just do deals. Yeah. And going from one deal to two deal to three deals a year, maybe all of a sudden you're going from a 10 unit to a 35 unit. That's as, as you guys can attest, that's a, that's a big jump. So as if, and when we're approaching that risk, sometimes it's, Hey, maybe we shouldn't be your lender. Maybe we should be your partner. And we think we, we definitely don't have all the answers, but we have a lot of relationships. We've seen a lot of things. So that's why sometimes we, that makes a, it's a good match. Not only do we, we know each other, but we can help them think through some of the challenges that they may uncover as they're, as they're growing. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a very interesting dynamic between the role of sponsor and GC and subcontractor because it is an entire ecosystem and a project could just go sideways for whatever reason. The market just tanks, right? All of a sudden sales aren't there. Now the GC can't get paid. Now the subs can't get paid through no fault of their own. Now they're having a liquidity issue. So everybody in the entire construction and real estate world does take on a great deal of risk just to make things, uh, to get things built. And honestly, I don't think most of society appreciates that when they're just harping on, well, we need more affordable housing. It's like, well, do you understand what it takes to build something? I don't think you do. And the amount of people that have to go through it, but, um, yeah. And that, I, e and that ecosystem is correlated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're, I think you're talking about one job. We had an electrician walk off a job because they were going under for something that was happening on a totally unrelated job. We suspected something was going on. And so we were able to do our best, but that's a risk that's really hard to quantify. Exactly. It's, it's impossible to predict. And, and that's the, that's the issue. It's like one, one issue unrelated to your job even could have a domino effect, but I, I would worse yet. It's, it's not, it's not very, um, diversified, right? This risk when it, when it happens, when the music really gets turned off, it's not just one electrician who may have had sort of something weird personally going on in their life. It's usually a macro force that's knocking out an electrician, a plumber, maybe you, maybe your GC. And we're all in, right? Like a lot of our chips are in this one space. I don't have umbrella and sunscreen. I basically just own umbrellas. So. <laughs> I want to actually go back to, to you guys and, you know, it sounds like your dad didn't really push you to be part of the business and, you know, having kids myself, Dan and I, we talk about would our kids ever be interested? So what was that relationship like? And what was, how was the approach? You were generally interested, not interested. Did he push you at all? Any of that come into play? How did it kind of work out? I, I never felt any pressure, but I, you know, you, we had a good, we had great parents. And we had happy childhoods. At least I did. I mean, <laughs> I, my high school lacrosse Jake, team Jake. was a championship team. And so that was a happy moment. Dave Jake, eats, Jake eats very fast. And the reason that is because at the dinner table, 
we'd always be fighting for food and he'd get el elbows <laughs> from me. And so now he's learned to eat very fast. Do you guys want to unpack this a little bit? <laughs> I'm going to need to lay down. Yeah, I got a couch. Yeah. yeah. No, but, but I do, I vividly remember going on a family vacation somewhere. And my father who does not drink, had a drink on the plane and ran through literally on a napkin, what refinancing a property means and pulling out capital and tax-free capital. Mm. And uh, we, uh, you know, we were probably, I was probably 10 years old. Jake was but, asking about his tax rate. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, in, <clears throat> you, you hear these lessons along the way. And I think it's human nature. If you have a happy childhood and you have happy parents to gravitate towards what they might do. So that's the way it worked for me. And, you know, just talking about opportunity, and I don't think this is where you're going, mm -hmm. uh, Mark, but I was involved with a program where we're helping a small business in Lawrence grow an apartment business. And we talked about, you know, where we came from and this couple had a, a great business and they bootstrapped it themselves, you know, in the juxtaposition of, of them mm -hmm. and, and our business was super interesting, mm -hmm. but they were, I told them this story about this airplane and they said, yeah. We just learned about the benefits of refinancing and taxes like last year. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of this has been ingrained unintentionally, mm -hmm. but you know, it's been fun. Skip. But we were never pushed into the business. Uh, I think it was certainly our, our dad's hope that somebody would step into it, but we were definitely never pushed into it. An unwritten family rule is that you got to work for three years for somebody else before joining the business. It was coincidental that both Jake and I each worked for seven years. And then our dad is fond of saying that both Jake and I took pay cuts when we joined the company. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. I'm like a black sheep. My whole family's in medicine and we wear <laughs> jeans and work boots, you know? Did you have a happy childhood? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my dad was in construction and so I'd apprentice from over the summer and, you know, I'm crawling around in attics and breathing in insulation and my mom's yelling at both of us after we get home filthy. He didn't wear a mask. He didn't do this. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. So that's why you have long COVID. No. <laughs> is, is that why you have a mustache? <laughs> uh, you know... That's just, I'm crazy. just doing it. I just got lazy. I just got lazy. Want to switch it up a bit. Yeah. But no, the point is I, at that point when I was going to college, went to Northeastern here in Boston and, and basically said, yeah, I'll never get into that again. How crazy you eat your own words. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The experience with modular and brain reminds me of like an early project I had too. I purchased what I thought this is much smaller, but a two family turned out that it was a store and an apartment. And a two family was not, uh, you know, allowed for, for use. And so I just freaked out immediately, you know, went to what would be the equivalent of uh, an institutional buyer. Like, how do I get out of this? And, um, <clears throat> you know, I actually, I talked to my dad and he said, sort of said, this is exactly the time that you don't freak out and dump the thing. This is where you really have to put on your boots and figure this out and, and work through it. And, and turned out, you know, fast forward to a really good project. I learned a lot about the zoning process in the city of Boston. I never maybe would have had a foray into that, but for this mistake. And so just like a, a lesson there that like, sometimes, you know, the dominoes fall in a direction you didn't intend or want, but you can't, can't freak. You have to keep your head. Mm -hmm. So that's my lesson for today. There you go. So what, what's kind of your one, five, do you have, you know, goals and, you know, if you're looking towards the future, what's kind of your the roadmap? Roadmap, yeah, master the master plan. Yeah, so we we we, actually, <laughs> we, we don't do a lot of three five year planning. Okay. I, there's a school. I, I think we certainly could, and and we've thought about it, and and I think we're thinking actively about it. I think as we, we, we sort of have we're had, thinking about making a plan. Yeah, <laughs> we, we sort of had a seminal moment in the last couple of years. Hey, what have we done in the last ten years? What do we want to do in the next ten years? And I think we want to continue to do what we're doing. You know growing our respective businesses, um, really focusing on the people, but we would like to own more residential. So as we think about that and, and strategize around that, that's sort of where the diversified apartment holdings came from, where we said, hey, let's stay in the middle market. Let's focus 30 unit buildings where we can work. You know, we think half of the deals will probably come in partnership with the builder network that we have and grow that business. But in addition, in our lending business, we have you know, five-year funds, and we now, which we didn't have in the past, we now have the ability to provide common or preferred equity with a portion of that capital. So as we look at the next 10 years, we are very well capitalized on any residential deal in greater Boston. That's called sub $35 million in size to provide either an acquisition loan, to buy our sales, to provide common equity, partner alongside to provide per preferred equity, providing long, uh, partnering alongside a builder, provide a second mortgage. So we sort of have the full 
product set to provide capital as an owner operator developer ourselves or to partner up with somebody else. So we're really, really jazzed about that. We'll continue to focus on what we've always been doing, which is buying oppor opportunity on the commercial side, but we're, we're pretty excited about the opportunity in front of us on the residential side. Have you ever looked outside of Massachusetts? Yep. So historically, we've owned property in Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Maine. We've had partnerships in Canada, but we have the ability and we have a small net lease investment vehicle to invest throughout the East Coast as far down as DC. So we own a property in Philly, but there's plenty for us to do locally. So I don't think we'll we'll go too far astray, certainly on the multifamily side. Nice. On the lending side of our business, we had been for three or four years in lending in you know Greenwich, Westport, Connecticut, Westchester County, New York. And that's a market we, those are two markets we've now exited, just found that we don't know the market as well. We don't have the same relationships. And, and importantly, those the foreclosure laws in those markets are such that it takes 12 months to foreclose on an asset, um, which as a construction lender makes it a challenge. So, But one of the big opportunities in front of us, and, and you guys will appreciate this, is we have a big team. We have a diverse team in terms of skill, and we have an appetite to grow. And one of the, I'd say Dave and I would agree that one of the most fun things that we've done is partnering with people who have good ideas, and they're typically a lot younger than us. Because starting this business, you need a lot of capital, you need a lot of gumption, and you need some skills. And most people probably have two of those things. <laughs> and so what what we've really liked doing is finding people who bring sort of foundational things that we want in a partner. <laughs> so they have a skill set, they have humility, and they have honesty. And with that and their idea, we can provide capital, skills, back office, and the ability to support execution and to allow an entrepreneur to grow a business a lot faster than they would have to do on their own. And probably with a lot less risk because we can take on a lot of the risk that they might not be as comfortable with. That's great. I think we're getting close to time. I wanted to ask you guys about uh, the Christmas card, a uh, holiday card that comes out every year. Who writes it and who picks the uh, the book? It was it was a good one. We have a ghostwriter. Yeah, we have a ghostwriter, yeah. Yeah, no, we work together on writing a letter and typically in July, I start cramming. It's a good synopsis of the market. Yeah, it's very cool. I liked, I liked, so we sent uh, Jamie Dimon's book called um, Last Man Last Standing. Man Standing. One. It basically tracks his career, which tracks sort of the growth of Wall Street. So it's a really cool history of both his story and Wall Street's expansion. And the year prior uh, might have been um, the WeWork story, Adam Newman. Yeah, we a little were, bit of a, uh, yeah. a donut story. Yeah. What else, Jake? Steve Schwartzman's book. These were before I was on the list. <laughs> we have to go back. We have some extras. We'll send you them. All right, perfect. Yeah. That's awesome. But you got to send the t-shirts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. I'm not you sure they really exist. Uh, I haven't seen them. Get some new pastel colors or something. You guys got to find a sponsor to buy them for you. <laughs> Dan no. has misappropriated those funds. <laughs> you know, the t-shirt money's gone. <laughs> Oh, this has been awesome. Cross-contamination yeah. of the funds. <laughs> Co-mingling. Co-mingling. <laughs> so what do you guys have going these days? What's, what are your most exciting projects today? We, we did a lot of talking. We did too much talking. What about you guys? I mean, we're we're pretty much concentrating on, on the Lindy R. Lind deal. So can uh, we grill 30 units? Can we grill you like you grilled us? Yeah. 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 So tell us about it. Let's hear it, guys. <laughs> Do you want I mean, a friendly interview or can we go? Can we, get <laughs> we have journalistic integrity on this podcast. You got to ask the hard questions. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'll give my spiel on it. It's, I, I think, you know, we had this debate when we were talking to folks that do like three units, six units and talking about, well, why, why would you get a GC, right? You can probably run the show. And we went into this project saying we can run the show. We actually had a, a 50 unit project that we were considering and we're under contract on before the 30 unit one, but it didn't pan out for a number of reasons. And we felt confident we could run the 50 unit one. And and looking at it now, I think 30 is probably a good cap and it was a good step up. And I certainly appreciate going back to the GC comment, appreciate what a GC can provide from the submittal standpoint and construction administration side of things, contra contractual, the subcontracts that, that is, you know, you'd have one point of contact with the GC as the owner, but as the GC and the owner, you've got both ends and it's... It's quite a lot more. I think involved. once you get to control construction, it's a, it's a whole different animal. Let's do a whole episode on this. Sure. Okay. I'll interview you guys. Oh, I mean, boy. that'd be great. I think we <laughs> talked about doing almost like a recap year, and then I just basically got sick for like a month. So, well, Mark was sick, and you were sick. How long has it been? What? Two and a half weeks. His first pod. Oh, first podcast? Damn. Oh. 88 episodes. Oh. 
we started the first podcast 2019. Was it 2019? It was before COVID. It was pre-COVID. Actually, the second episode, I was having another health issue. I was like broken out in hives <laughs> oh, yeah. with Ricky in the, our other office. If you guys, if we're if we're on our second pod, you guys must be really fighting for scraps here. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so back to a tough question. Yeah. Uh, how, why Lynn? Do you want the politically correct answer or the no? No, answer? I assume we're done recording. No, it's still oh. going. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, no, we're because it was a buy right project. I, mean, I didn't yeah. have to deal with any special permits or I mean, it didn't take me 18 months to get it approved. D Dan and I. Wouldn't you been... say it was good land? It was high quality, good land on a prominent corner. It, for it, not it's a not a ton of money. It's not like we went to Lynn because there was nowhere else to go. We went, we, we, Dan and I went and did a little soul searching at the start of COVID and said, what the hell are we doing? Because we're just spinning our tires. We're doing these little condo projects. We're not growing in unit count so and and it seems like every entitlement is a battle and you know in the city of boston and for better or worse it is it's you know the community has so much control they slow the process down it, it just it sucks right it's not just not fun and yeah and it's not going to get any easier so i mean we ended up talking to somebody who we would call our unofficial mentor and that gentleman said you know let's just talk about what maybe it's maybe a location issue it's not a you guys issue it's not anything else and so we just started looking everywhere well our, i mean our i think our places yeah i mean i think to get back, back in our in the back of our mind from the beginning we were like we need to we need to stick with boston because it's resilient and you know it will weather any type of downturn if there's if there is one and so going outside the city was kind of scary for us and it was a big unknown and we knew the city right we had we had went to school here i i, I lived in the city since 2002 so you know it's it's i kind of knew it and so i think that was obviously a, kind of a big hurdle mentally to to kind of start to look outside of of boston and kind of look at some tertiary markets that might have just as much opportunity and to raise point, we wanted to scale. We, you know, we had done, you know, two to eight units up until that point. And, you know, I think we kind of wanted to to take it to another level. And I think that the, obviously to do a 30 unit project in, in the city, the barrier entry is way higher from an acquisition standpoint. So, you know, that's kind of what kind of spearheaded. And what's, uh, it was really just opportunity at that point. Yeah. Like I said, there was a another property in Lynn that we had put under contract and we were thinking 50 units. And then as we started doing some of the um, schematics and, and feasibilities, it wasn't going to pan out the way we wanted to. So we just had to cut the cord loose. Then we found this other one that we'd been talking to the seller for for a while. And we said, well, let's, let's do a schematic on that. And it shares two roadways so we could do zero lot line. We have to worry about windows. So logistically it worked out a lot better. It was in a better location, closer to downtown. So things just started jiving and we said, this, this is making sense. And so let's, let's do it. And so you're, it was an OZ and you're out of the ground framing now. Yeah. We're out of the yep. ground. Steel's done. And so what's been the biggest surprise to date? Biggest surprise. Biggest surprise is just the, like I had mentioned earlier, just acting as a GC. I think, big, well, I think biggest surprise during construction wise was we had anticipated building a basement. And then we, when we started getting into, you know, bidding things out and the shoring that was involved with the basement and we kind of started, we weren't the, I think the biggest hurdle was the, the seller didn't allow us to do any earth testing, Geotech, yeah. Geotech before we so closed. Was kind of a loony. Yeah. So we didn't, <laughs> <laughs> it was, he was, we didn't know. Is he a listener of the pod? No, Probably not. no. We didn't know. Although, although this is off. This is we're not. No, we are. No, no, no. I got the headphones on. This, this is, is no, the second is, part of the episode. This is, this is good content. No, but this, this is good. This is this part is going to get yeah. cut. This part is going to get cut because the fine. Alex, you will keep this in the podcast. Ricky gets all of his insurance from the seller. Yeah. But anyway, he didn't let us do any geotech testing before we closed. So we ended up having to wait and we obviously had our plans drawn up because they were approved and we had a basement. And so we didn't realize obviously where the water table was and shoring and all that stuff. Yeah, about, some of the ground improvement stuff was yeah. all new to us and steel was new, but that was actually pretty easy to manage. It's really just the, the earthwork and site work, which is a little frustrating to deal with when you really don't know what you're dealing with until you get into it. 
How about the formality of the relationship with the subs, right? Like on a smaller level, everything's a handshake and an understanding. I got you, you got me on the bigger deals. I think we had a conversation about uh, just a winter conditions claim for yeah. extra costs. Yeah. It, it's stuff like that, that I think you're at the beginning of the project and you have to just be acutely aware of. Contracts are important. So again, going back to that whole appreciative of the GC thing, you, you, I'm very deliberate in how I get things out or don't get them out. And I get them out before they're due, but sometimes it's down to the wire, but it's all intentional. And and for that little change order nonsense, don't you worry, we're rejecting it. Yeah, but you guys, have, you guys have a unique advantage, which is you, you seem to gravitate towards the contracting and, well, and, and have, have an expertise. Yeah. I mean, we definitely have the experience in it. And so it's not foreign to us. Uh, I think the scale is a little bigger, but it's not anything that we can't manage. I think you guys were also smart enough to supplement with a experienced construction professional. Yes. Who you've hired as a consultant. Yeah, we hired a first name. Mark. I provide free consulting services. They actually. No, yeah, we ha we did hire a, a part-time PM to kind of help us. He's had a lot, you know, he's had a lot of experience in the industry yeah. and yeah. ton of relationships. He's been pivotal with the buyouts and that sort of thing. Well, and kind of leveling sheets, teaching us the, the whole submittal process. Cause obviously that's all new to us and, and, you know, buying out and dealing with some of these larger subcontractors, it's definitely a different animal. Writing yeah. tight scopes of work, et cetera. Exactly. Yes. Level, less leveling sheets and sheets all that stuff. So. And so if, if, if uh, offered a new opportunity today, would you take it on or would you want to see this one you know, through, through another three to six months before you feel comfortable? I think Ray, and I, I, think Ray and I differ on that. But I do, and it's okay. I think that I, pers I think that once I, for me, I think once we're out of the ground completely and watertight, I'd like to maybe start looking for the next opportunity because depending on where it is and how long it might take to get entitled, if we have to entitle it, you know, we're hopefully slated to finish this project end of this year. I was, oh. I was finding that like there's a honeymoon period to a construction project. Yeah. And I hate to say it, but you're certainly in it and you're almost in it until sometimes like the guys come back to do the finished work. <laughs> like we just start hanging mirrors and it's like, oh great, the, the electric outlets are all behind the guest bathroom mirror in every bathroom, you know, or like, you know, the, the toilet didn't have enough distance for the rough and it, these things. It's like the punch. Come on, you, you always are smiling. The gray hairs. Yeah, Dan exactly. hates the last ten percent. You're smiling. Everything is good, and then you can start getting the calls. Like, hey, well, what the hell do you want me to do about this? And you're like, ah, uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd say I think you almost got to clean your plate. But I'm very risk averse, and uh, I don't like a lot of stress. Yeah, but so you I, just took on two projects at once, which you've really never done before, right? Right. That's true. How's that gone? <laughs> That's good. We haven't the heard third episode. Said we haven't, I was going to say, we haven't seen much of Mark lately. I love, it yeah. when, I love it when people almost yeah. exclusively do development and describe themselves as risk averse. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this is an industry that attracts cowboys, right? Like guys that just... You're the only one wearing flannel, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm from New Hampshire. I have a lot of friends who can sleep very well at night with 15 balls in the air and they have no idea where any of them are going to land, but they just have confidence that they'll figure out and catch them all. I like to know exactly to the inch where those things are going to land. So I'm kind of a micromanager in that. So way. do you buy out on your size projects? Are you doing buyouts like right at the start so you can get your pro forma tightened up or? No, because it, it wouldn't be financially advantageous. All the, like the smaller subs, they don't bid off of a set of plans. You want a really good painting number? Right. Good luck emailing that to a painter. You basically have to drywall and then walk a couple through. Yeah. We, we, and Dan like and I just spoke about trades. this today. We're yeah. Yeah. debating, yeah. do we use a bid that we got or do we go with the Wait. guy that we've used? Plus prices are coming down. Anyway, I think, uh, I mean, any other hard questions? Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to continue to GC jobs? Depends. Yeah, it depends. The job's not done yet. I mean, I, <laughs> listen, I'm, I'll, I'll be, I'm more of the conservative side, right? So I'm, I don't need to rush into another job. I, I'm not like addicted to the juice or anything like that. I would like to see. How Dave did call himself a drunk yeah. earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I, so at a certain uh, point, yeah. a lender is going to force you to hire a GC. Well, well course, actually, I'd be interested course, in your, your, your take on that. You, would you, is there a spot where you're saying to hypothetical developer partners in your lending business, you guys aren't GC in this? Our loan sizes are typically such that our builders are typically performing their own work. Yeah. We definitely have looked at some, you know, somebody we've done 10 units with who's now doing 30, 35, and we ask them those questions about AGC, but... But do you have the next level up of subcontractor that can handle these jobs? And, and some of them are convinced that the subs they use can can scale up, and sometimes they're right. And 
uh, oftentimes they're not. So uh, yeah. we evaluate that as part of the risk. Yeah. And you know, what about people that you're partnering with? Are you forcing kind of them to use a GC or are you allowing them to self-perform? Depends on the project, but to date we've let them do it. If we felt comfortable, uh, their ability to administer it, to, to handle it all. Uh, but I'm more interested in like, what do you think you're uniquely good at and what do you enjoy? You know, like for example, yeah. you talk about the honeymoon phase of a uh, development. Yeah. Like the honeymoon phase is once it's planned and approved for me and then yeah. it's done. Yeah. Like, you know, having sat in on job site meetings, uh -huh. it's painful. I'd rather, I tell you a long list of things I'd rather do. Yeah. Uh, well, Dan, so, so Dan's front office, I'm the back office. So Dan's, we'll talk to the on-site side of things, but in terms of the, the, con the control, I'll call it, of the, the back end of it, you can at least, if you have a traditional GC, you're probably not going to get five or six or eight or 10 bids. Whereas that's what we did by utilizing this project consultant. We have a, a Rolodex and, you know, for HVAC, for example, went to like 35 different subs. It was absolutely wild to try and get a number that worked. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them just said we couldn't do it. We're still busy. So it, yeah, I think it depends on what trade, but anyway, to, to your question, I think having that level of control and being able to move pieces around, you don't get that kind of granularity and that sort of flexibility within the project. And I think it benefits the project by retaining that control. It is giving me gray hairs, but it's also new. So it's a lot of learning, right? So you just kind of have to be the sponge and absorb it and I, you're more prepared for the next one. I also think that the amount of VE that we've been able to do having direct contact with the subs yep. and talking through the plans and saying, hey, this is what our architect MEP folks have spec'd. Where can we maybe save or cut and, and do something different here based on your experience? And I think having a GC, you might not get that as much. I'll, I'll tell you what else, uh, my unsolicited <laughs> opinion here, GC versus self-performing. Yeah, we talked about the formality of relationships with your subs and the cutthroat nature of, of the business at a larger scale you're still a human being and you're a good guy and you have relationships with the owner of the masonry company, the owner of the HVAC company. And I think that you'll find that there's a lot less tit for tat and small change orders throughout the project because there, you know, there's someone on the other end who's a person, not just an intermediary GC who then meets you on a Wednesday afternoon at your job meeting and passes a piece of paper across because there was an extra nut bolt and washer not shown on your plans. Yeah. You know, no, I, you, you know, if you want to make and, a claim for a change, you have to look me in the eye and tell me that it's legit and you're not just, and I think there's a lot more like, just, you know, small, just small things where it's like helping, helping us out throughout the job site versus mm -hmm. like, oh, the, the steel guy had a, a lull on site. And I asked him if he could move the fuel cube and the heater closer to the building. Cause I got to tarp the, the steel and get ready for the slab on deck, like small things like that, where it's like, I would have to hire someone or rent a lull to do that, but because I'm on site, I have a direct relationship with the with the sub. I can be like, hey man, before you leave at the end of the day, can you just can you do that? For also, me? your incentives are different. So when I'm on site, I always I shouldn't probably say this out loud, but I always have cash in my pocket, right? I always have something. I always have a, a pizza delivery yeah, place on the ready, drink, and it's like it's it's all in, at the end of the day, it's all my pot, whatever, however well it goes or doesn't, not poorly it goes. So if, if there's a situation like that, and someone did something for me, they're definitely going to get yeah something for. Oh yeah, like I brought I. What's that? Yeah, uh, pepperoni, <laughs> definitely pepperoni. <laughs> but oh yeah, I like I try to do coffees every Friday. Like I try to yeah. do. But if you're just a superintendent there on a salary, I'm not knocking any superintendent on salary. But there's not a chance that I'm going to reach into my wallet and buy the entire site uh, real estate addicts t-shirts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they love them. By yeah. the way, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it, it when you own when you own it and and you've got that sort of equity in your back pocket. It's a whole different relationship. And it's not just because of that that you do it, but it's so everything's so relationship based. I, I, everything I, I, I wonder though, we, you know, you've worked on larger jobs that I, I think are not necessarily your own. You know, I wonder if the structure of a general contract and finding shared savings and contracting it in a way, the human touch might dissipate for sure. And that's, you know, based on the, who the project executive is <laughs> or whatever, but can you structure the contract so that you do get the VE and boots on the ground efficiency that you really otherwise would only get if you're there mm. running it. With the right general contractor or partner, I'd like to think yes. It's just, it's tough. The, the other thing is there's just not that much margin in deals. And when you start paying GCs and fee, it, the deals are hard enough to pencil without. So yeah, I find that to be true. Yeah, go, go, so going back to your question, would I do another one? I yeah, think- I really answer. I, I like, <laughs> I, I think I like, uh, what? 
What'd you say? I said I didn't really answer. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to finish answering? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I like the like adaptive reuse or value add to an existing asset, I think is a much easier pill to swallow, uh, in my opinion. And I feel like we've, we've done it a lot and we've had pretty good success with it. Um, it's a faster turnaround sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it depends. But there's nothing better than new construction when you know every... Once you're on the ground. Ball. Yeah. yeah. Well, even in the ground, right? You're like, hey, I know that this ground is good. I know that the foundation's good. I know that we did this. We tested this. No, I'm saying that that risk and that feeling oh, of like right. predictability. Yeah. yeah. We've always joked that building, it's the easiest. It's getting through the permitting and design phase sometimes that can be more challenging. But but yeah, once you're out of the ground, it's much... It's familiar. Yeah. And you know everything that went into it, so you know where, like, you don't have any surprises in the walls, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I, yeah, we're not, I don't think we, because this is going to be like the bonus episode here. Like, we're, we're going to finish the album, the CD. I think what we'll yeah. do. Secret song on yeah. the end. Is that what this I, is? Yeah, I, I think guess what it we'll is. do yeah. it. We'll just kind of preface this. We can record a little something and say, hey, you know, listen towards the end. We have a little bonus content at the end here. <laughs> yeah. Well, since we're, since so we're having excited. bonus context, yeah. we got. Three Bostonians? Yep. Best pizza place. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. Ray, you go first. Oh, God. I mean, I'm not from Boston, so you can't hold me to it. I just pushed it to Ray pizza so I Rio could Regina, think about it. the North End. Yeah. <laughs> I think the original Regina's is really good. Are you Santarpio's? Santarpio's, yes. baby. I kind of like Molinari's in Dorchester. Molinari's is very good. I'm a neighborhood guy now. Neighborhood guy? That's it. What, what what you, you, what's your answer? Santarpios. Santarps? Okay. Yeah. yeah. But not the one on the north. No, uh, Route 1, right? But you mean in Saugus? Yeah. Saugus is an awesome market. There should be more retail. <laughs> the one in East Boston is excellent. Yeah. yeah. Where are you guys looking as far as bonus content? Um, so we know it's getting, the, the winds are getting harder and harder to build in Boston. Not tailwinds. Where do you go next? Is it Quincy? Is it Saugus? Is it Everett? What are, where, where's uh, Southern New Hampshire? Yeah. I, I, I'd be interested to see what Dave says, but Mark, we, we are going back to the basics and focused on cash flow. So the wins that have uh, lots of people have racked up over the past 10 years, I don't think are necessarily normal for a normal real estate cycle. And I think the near term, certainly for the next 12 to 24 months, is going to be much more back to the basics of real estate, buying property, collect cash flow that is not sexy, and pay down your debt dutifully over a long period of time. And Transitional real estate, buying something broken, fixing and selling it, I think is is uh, going to be challenging for the near term. Yeah. So I, uh, on the on the ownership side of our business, I think we're going to stay laser focused inside 128 and probably more more urban. Uh, on the lending side of our business, as, either as a lender or as an equity provider, I can see us. We will continue to focus there, but I can see us seeing more opportunistic deals where the basis just seems super compelling, and there may be some level of distress from a seller. Where I can see us stepping outside of. The, the greater Boston core, but that's more of a shorter term investment where um, there's a near term opportunity to monetize and, and create value and to exit. But if we're an, a long term owner of residential real estate, we're focused inside 128. Have you, on the lending side, have you seen any uh, of your, I guess, clients, borrowers, partners, partners, friends? <laughs> Have you seen any of them getting into trouble based on covered market conditions? Or changing market conditions. Knock on wood, our, our portfolio is in, in, in really good shape. Uh, we do so much repeat business with the same folks. We generally know where their strengths and weaknesses are. And we're doing a good job managing the asset and overseeing the construction. But things are getting done more on budget than they have historically over the last couple of years. And, and certainly certainly on time. But there's the stress coming. We, we're getting calls from, from small developers where projects had their own delays for whatever reason. And their cost of capital has dramatically grown over the last six months. And so they need capital. They want certainty. They need help. So, so we're, it, we're getting those it's, calls. At some level of distress, but there's there's more motivated seller in the market today as a general barometer than, than there was. You know, Somebody may have owned an asset for a long time and their 3% debt may be coming up and they need to refinance you know, maybe the same debt, but instead of a three, it's gonna be six. And they may say, you know, my cash flow is not gonna be as compelling as it was. I, I'm just gonna monetize this and, and own it. Um, so interesting. Yeah. I feel like with that movement so quickly, uh, last year, it hasn't had time to reverberate and specifically with 
people floating and going to temp firm on construction or term loans because all commercial is going to be five to seven years usually or 10 years, whatever it is, whatever their terms are, whether they reset, that's going to be happening. So, I mean, I guess it really all depends on if the Fed keeps it high or if they bring it high, get the results they need and bring it down. And Yeah, so I, I would agree with that. That being like fundamentals in greater Boston today remain very strong. You know, there's plenty of headlines about layoffs, but we have not seen it in a major way here. Talk to a developer in San Francisco and they're seeing a lot of weakness and a lot more job yeah. loss today. Oh, yeah. that, that may change. But fundamentally, we're in a, a, a very supply-constrained market, and, and building new, as we all see, is getting harder and harder. So if you just take a 12, 24, 36-month projection going forward, the inventory story is getting worse, not better. Yeah, we, so we talk about fundamentals this. remain yeah. okay. It's a cost of capital story, and there may be some challenges and distress, but the fundamentals are will carry the day. Yeah, I feel like we've, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast where it's like, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, right? So, you know, we have such restrictive zoning here that it's so difficult to build and so difficult to get stuff approved. But at the same time, the restrictive supply helps us in times like this. So it's bad for social policy, good yeah. for landlords. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, we remember that episode with Ed Glazer that we did yeah. and I asked him because mm -hmm. in his book, he talked about how Detroit was so, you know, monolithic with one industry, the car industry. And we saw how Detroit fell off the map. And then I think I asked him, and I don't know if I was predicting it or not, but I, I asked him, do you see that with San Francisco and the tech industry, like Silicon Valley? And I, could, I don't remember his answer. I will go back and listen. But it's kind of playing out in that all the tech folks with COVID, they're like, well, we can hire people that can go remote so we don't have to be based in San Francisco. And then there's also aspect of, you know, policies that are out there allowing it to not be as desirable to live in some of those areas. And, or do business in. Or do business in right they want to just keep adding more taxes so that's my one worry about boston is that if we try and mimic states or in cities like that will it harm everything will it will it end the show but then you just go somewhere else i suppose are you guys familiar with um, ed glazer harvard economist he wrote a book uh how cities make us healthier wealthier greener and uh triumph of the city triumph of the city interesting post-covid um i wonder if he would still keep the healthier that kind of <laughs> got turned on his head for a minute could be a good one for uh, next year jake yeah there you go yeah it's perfect yeah. well we'll also include a real estate addicts t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> turns out we do in lynn <laughs> just well just jacking on those sponsors yeah <laughs> well we appreciate it guys yeah it's been really really great really nice to catch up if folks want to reach out to you for um any strategic partnerships how would they uh what's the best way yeah uh, jake at grossmanco.com or david at grossmanco.com all right awesome. thanks guys thank, thank you, guys. you. Bye. cheers see you on the next one